is Shandy Chernow, and you're listening to the Shandyland podcast. I have with me today someone who has my favorite tagline ever that I have found about themselves on a website, comfort food enthusiast in high heels, literally the best thing since sliced bread right there, Joanna Fantosi. She's the senior editor at Nation's Restaurant News and Restaurant Hospitality. Joanna, thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Yeah. No, I'm I'm thrilled to talk about this. I mean, obviously publications I keep up with because of my job, right? And I know a lot of other people do too. So I'm having a little bit of like fangirl here. You know, it's not often that you get to talk to somebody who publishes things that you get to read. So talk to me about how you landed in journalism. You have a degree in creative writing and English literature. Why take the journalism path? What sparked your passion? I find that when you're in college uh, and you're an English major, a lot of people assume that you're either going to be a teacher or a professor. Um, and I knew I didn't want to do that, but I didn't know what I wanted to do. Um, so I decided to kind of on a whim apply for uh, journalism school for graduate school. And I ended up going to uh, City University of New York Graduate School of Journalism, uh, now known as the Newmark School of Journalism. Um, and that was 11, I had to think a minute. <laughs> that was 11 <laughs> years ago at this point. Goodness, I'm getting old. Um, and um, since then, I kind of just evolved my career from then. When I was at journalism school, I decided I was really passionate about, um, about the arts reporting. And I kind of even furthered that, uh, further narrowed down that niche to, um, to food and restaurant reporting. So why the spark for hospitality? Um, well, I think that at the time I actually had to choose a subject of interest at graduate school, kind of a, uh, a path to um, focus in the arts and culture reporting program. And I, I was thinking, well, I like to cook and I like watching Food Network. So it <laughs> first became like, well, I'll just choose this. But then I just became a lot more passionate about it. Um, my first internship was at the New York Daily News, and I got to write a lot about restaurants, local restaurants there. And I just really developed a passion for it, kind of um, veered from that path a little bit. I did some local news reporting. I did some um, purely entertainment reporting, um, but I always came back to uh, um, food, restaurants, and hospitality. So I don't know where I got it from, but I read somewhere in one of the many websites that you find information about you on. Uh, that you also have an interest in political and cultural reporting and stories and information, I guess. How do you marry that back with the hospitality piece? Um, well, I think that the way I've actually been able to do this is uh, in my current role um, with Nation's Restaurant News is I've sort of become the unofficial, I guess, political reporter um, where I've kind of reported on whatever now, now through two presidential administrations, reported on whatever... Um, legislation that's being passed or considered um, that might help or hinder the restaurant or hospitality industry. And I'm really passionate about that. And I think that, that that sort of started when I was a local news reporter straight out of graduate school, um, where I reported on um, news for, um, if anyone, if any listeners are live in New York, uh, the Upper West Side and Upper East Side in Manhattan. Um, and, uh, and, and downtown as well. And I got a little bit into reporting on local politics. So um, I, I kind of was able to bring that spark of interest to, uh, to my current reporting. Nice. It must be fun to kind of be able to look at it from multiple perspectives. 
So in this whole pandemic thing, obviously there was a lot of political stuff that surrounded the restaurant industry, right? And it feels right now like the thing that has kind of trailed on as we, I don't know if I can say moved past it or you know wherever it is that we are in this quagmire, the thing that is kind of stuck is the staffing, the, the changes that the industry went through during in the height of, but it hasn't necessarily naturally alleviated. What are your thoughts? How do we well, get like, what's next? You know, what does the industry do about it? And then what's the next thing? That's something that my team and I, my company and I think about every day. Um, I think that the restaurant industry, the hospitality industry is really in a time of flux. It's in a time of change. I think we will see the, the industry coming out of that soon, soon and kind of um, the, the, not to sound cliche, but kind of the strongest will survive. And by that, I mean, um, the folks that are that are treating um, their employees really well will survive. I mean, at this point, toward I want to say a couple of years ago, I was writing about you know the fight for fifteen fifteen dollars per hour, and now it's sort of assumed that a lot of folks will be paid fifteen dollars per hour, and in in many states, that's not even uh, really a living really livable, like especially in New York. Especially um, in New York. So it's, it's, <laughs> That's kind of even seen like, oh, you're $15 an hour. That's so 2018. We're, we're paying our workers $17 or $18 an hour. Um, but it's more complicated. And Bernie Sanders that. is sitting back looking at the world right now, right? <laughs> yes, for sure. I know that uh, that Bernie has been in a couple of the um, other more uh, um, left-wing um, politicians have, have been uh, staunch supporters of uh, passing a new minimum wage law um, that it was it, it had an opportunity to be included in in a couple of the bills this year uh, in a couple of uh, congressional packages, but was not um, uh, I guess unfortunately or fortunately depending on your perspective. <laughs> yeah. So something that you know when you said only the or not only but you know the strong will survive this whole staffing thing, and you went with the people who treat their employees the most beneficially. I don't remember exactly what words you used. The thing that kind of clicked in my head before you said that was the ones with the deepest pockets seem to be the ones that will survive if it's a wage war, right? So how how do the independents, um, you know, who aren't necessarily the deepest pockets in the industry, how do they go forward from here, do you think? It's not the the secret is is it's really not just about wages. I think that's only one piece of the puzzle, as I've learned. It's really about um flexible things like flexible scheduling things mm. like um you know the this company that we've written about several times that's kind of been a leader in uh changing labor practices and pizza um they during the pandemic they would give they would offer their um uh, their employees rides uh, rides home with with lyft or with or with uber um so that they didn't well, have nice. transportation it's things like just making making people, I guess, making your employees feel like they're human beings and not just cogs in a machine. And that can be that can be wages. That can that can be making sure that um, there's upward mobility. That can be flexible mm -hmm. scheduling. There's all sorts of pieces and moving parts. So if uh, if a restaurant doesn't really have the the funds to be able to compete with that seventeen or eighteen dollars per hour uh, wages, they can. They, they might be able to treat their employees more personally um, than a large corporation. I like the Lyft one, getting home safe and sound after, after your shift. What are some other interesting benefits that you've heard some of the people, some of the restaurants that you've covered offer? I think that, um, you know, 
parental leave, um, child care services, um, and um, I mean, not necessarily like a, this isn't really quite a benefit, but um, we've interviewed um, a few different newer breakfast and lunch brands that basically opened because they knew that they would be it would be easier to get people um, on board because you know it's basically exactly. it's like a seven to four job or eight to four job and you're home with your kids as opposed to a lot of other restaurants you know in the restaurant industry it's kind of hard to have a family and etc um so i think just i think i just keep coming back to that idea of flexibility and and letting people be able to catch their breath and have a life outside of uh outside of working for your restaurant yeah, I mean, it's so interesting because it's such kind of a hardcore industry historically, right? Especially, I think, on the on the kitchen side. Nobody come at me for that. But like, you know, the, the, the chefs are hardcore from a work perspective. And so bringing that work-life balance, for lack of another term that's less cliche, uh, yeah, I mean, I think that that's a really strong draw to bring people back in. Mm-hmm. And I think like, I don't know if you were hinting toward that, but I mean, just several years ago um, with um, in, in restaurants, when you think about kind of more the chef side of things, a lot of um, a lot of chefs were accused of sexual harassment or abuse. And it I feel like that sort of started to change that culture where it became less about, you know, having a power, let's say the the. Um, the executive chef or the owner of the restaurant having a power trip kind of thing and more about knowing how to run a restaurant like a team like a family um and calling out poor behaviors and yeah, and, and how to lead right yes like many and many other industries super interesting any thoughts on kind of what happens next where do they go from here um in terms of uh, like wh- where restaurants go from here, in terms of the industry like uh, labor shifts crisis. on the horizon that you're getting wind of, um, I think that um, I think that the the um, the labor crisis will wane eventually because I think that you know if you have a a a, a competitive market here, um, eventually if if you know, six out of 10, let's say totally random number restaurants start <laughs> treating their employees like human beings, giving them uh, benefits, parental leave, some higher wages, et cetera. Then, um, then I think that all, all of the restaurants will have to change their ways to compete with that. Yeah. I like it. I think it's good. All right. So let's shift gears. Let's have a little fun with your journalism. What's the favorite sure. story you've ever written? And oh. why? Oh no, that's hard. I don't know. Uh-huh. Um, I'm not I, here to ask you all the easy questions. <laughs> <laughs> I think two come to mind. Um, but I'll I'll say probably maybe this is this kind of changing a little bit of a favorite interview. Um, but that's my next question. So you oh, can answer two well, at once. No, two and one. Bring it. Give me a favorite story uh, and favorite interview. I like it. Okay, so I think that um, my favorite story was. Um, I have two favorite stories. I'll say two favorite stories and one favorite interview. Um, one of uh, the, the, neither of them, neither of my favorite stories currently that I can think of right now are in my current role, but um, even though I have a ton of amazing content from NRN, but um, 
I would say that one time I was able to, at a previous position at the Daily Meal, I was able to interview Anthony Bourdain um, oh. about six months before his death. I was so nervous. I bet. Um, and we basically just ended up, it was just this, I, I interviewed him at this event where he was sponsoring, I think it was some sort of a whiskey event. I honestly don't remember at this point. <laughs> um, and I was like, it's nerve wracking to drink whiskey with Anthony Bourdain. Um, and he was exactly kind of as, as, as you would think he was. Um, so I think that that is my favorite interview. Um, and what was exciting about that is he ended up saying some sort of quip about, um, I asked him what he thinks about the artisan movement, because um, at the time there was artists in this and artists in that. Mm -hmm. um, and he, I said, you know, McDonald's just came out with artisan burgers. What do you think about that? He said the only way that McDonald's would come out with artisan burgers if they if they put artisans in their burgers. Um, and apparently that quote was so beloved that I got a call from People Magazine being like, uh, "Can you confirm that we want to?" quote him saying this can you confirm that he said this um so that was kind of funny and nice a lot feather of in the cap there huh yes and um a couple of my favorite stories I've written um I was able to from my first job out of graduate school uh some of the more uh I, I used to love doing human interest stories especially you know local reporting a lot of it's human interest stories sure. I did a story on um uh, it, it was as, I believe, um, it, it was as um, gay marriage was about to be legalized um, uh, nationally. Mm -hmm. And I did a story um, interviewing this, um, not quite elderly, maybe middle-aged toward elderly uh, gay couple lives in the village. And um, I just spent the entire day with them. And I just feel like I learned a lot about um about the AIDS movement, they were both living with HIV um, and they had both been really sick. And then they, I, I just like hadn't thought about, you know, um, the AIDS movement kind of beyond the peak of uh, uh, the peak of the crisis in the eighties and nineties. Mm -hmm. And now it's, it's amazing that these people are just living their lives. And yes, they have to take a lot of medication and go to a lot of doctors. They were living their lives together. And I just really liked being able to do that. Um, and I well, also, and you were able to humanize something for people that they might not have an opportunity to learn about firsthand. Yeah, absolutely. And that's why I think local journalism is so underrated um, and underappreciated. And I also wrote a story um, about a fashion designer who designs or a fashion design company that designs clothing for clergy. So, I mean, well, who to thunk that exists? I know. I didn't know either. I I got this sort of tip from somebody on this, and I was like, "This is really interesting." On and it was the only the only one and only sort of I guess fashion story I ever wrote um, <laughs> as a freelance story, and I was able to uh, interview this the uh, the guy at this company who they create catalogs for for priests, for rabbis, for whomever. Um, and Can you, you know, like bedazzle like, your robes? Like, I didn't ask that. I should have. But, uh, <laughs> those are some of the uh, the more interesting, yeah, stories I've done. There are kind of different from what I do now. <laughs> totally, I mean, those, those are fascinating. Okay, so Anthony Bourdain is amazing. Was amazing. May he rest in peace. Who else is on your bucket list interview? Who else is on your interview bucket list? Let's put mm. that sentence in the right order. 
I don't know. Um, like if you could just pick someone, I'll even give you dead or living. I have never interviewed Gordon Ramsay. I would love to do that. I feel like I've interviewed a lot of the celebrity chefs, uh, but he would be someone I would love to interview. Yeah, I met Guy Fieri uh, at an event with um, a customer of ours, and I was so starstruck by it that I don't even know that I said hello. Like, I have a picture with him. I don't think I talked to him. I was so like, oh, my God. Just kind Such of a regret that moment, you know? <laughs> He's actually so, he's so nice. Um, I, I did, I did a very brief phone interview with him. That's the only time I've ever spoken with him uh, for a restaurant that was going aboard a cruise line uh, a few years back. But I think that in the past he had gotten this reputation as kind of being fake or, or, um, or whatever. And I think that people are realizing that he really isn't. And that just because he kind of has silly hair, um, he's really authentic and does a lot of community and charity work. Well, he has a kind of a showy personality, right? So I think yeah, people assume. Exactly. <laughs> but, yeah, I'd love to I'd love to talk to Gordon Ramsay. So now you and I have both put it out there in the universe. Gordon, if you ever listen to this, chef, come talk to both of us, okay? Because <laughs> we'd love to have you. No, I, I think that's really cool. Okay, so another bucket list question. You've already been published in the New York Times, which to me feels like a pretty bucket listy publication for a journalist. You've been, you've talked to people, they've used your quotes. What else is in your bucket list of publications that you'd like to see your work in? Hmm. That's a good question. Oh, I think that I would love to freelance for the New York times again. That would be great. Um, and the, the food section this time, cause that was the, that was the clergy story, actually. <laughs> clergy fashion story. I didn't want to say. I'm so tickled by that one, by the way. I didn't want to like, sound I like it. I was bragging. So I just did not say the publication. You're not, I'll brag for um, you. Um, and um, hmm, I don't know. I feel like Time Magazine would be a great one as well. Oh, that is a good and one. And I've I've never been published thus far in the print food magazine, so Food and Wine, etc. Yeah, no, consumer those are great lists. Consumer food publications, obviously, Nations Restaurant News. <laughs> and you uh, never know who might listen to our little podcast here, right? So <laughs> let's put it all out there to the world and see what happens. All right, so you work now. With, at Nation's Restaurant News and Restaurant Hospitality, but you spent quite a bit of time freelancing. What's kind of the difference? What are the pros and cons of each side of the industry in journalism? Can I call I, journalism an industry? I can, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that freelancing, it really depends on your temperament and work, and work style. Uh, for me, I was kind of between jobs and I did freelancing for about a year um, and I was trying to find the, the next best fit for my, my full-time, next full-time position. And I don't really think I have the temperament for um, freelancing. It is, it is a lot of hustling. I mean, you get to be your own boss, which is great, but it's a lot of hustling. You're constantly having to network, um, juggling different, um, different editors, different personalities, and uh, you have to have really good uh, time management and edit um, and calendar skills. But at the same time, like I said, you get to be your own boss and make your own hours, et cetera. Um, but I do think that I prefer having, personally prefer having a uh, full-time position and only working for one publication or two at this time. So on that point, web publication versus in print, what are your thoughts on the future of print journalism? Oh, I think that, you know, people have said that, that print journalism is dying for about, I want to say like 15 years. Yeah, right. Uh, it, it's not dead yet, um, but I do Still think there. every every day I hear of that, you know, um, 
this publication or that, like um, my uh, former place of work, the Daily News, uh, no longer it's, is, um, a lot of them are just going to online only or significantly reducing um, uh, the, the, uh, the size of their publication. And we did the exact same thing. Restaurant hospitality used to be, um, used to be a print publication as well and is now digital only. Um, so I do think, you know, it is, I guess, maybe still dying a slow death, but I think that, I, I don't think that that's the end of journalism. I don't think that's, that's the death of journalism, but I do think that we have to figure out a way to properly monetize um, digital, digital journalism because people still hate paywalls. Um, whenever people complain about paywalls, I say, hi, journalists need to be paid. Um, for their work. I think people are used to clicking on a website and you get it for free. Um, but yeah, I and I think that's absolutely, I'm, I'm one of those people who objects when there's a paywall. I, I pay for several, right? but it feels like there's so many different websites and to get access to all of them. I mean, mm-hmm. that that's a point of frustration. I concur with it. Is. It is for sure. Um, but then people also don't like for example, when you have sponsored content, like, you know, the BuzzFeeds of the world have done this where they have a ton of sponsored content. Well, um, it's hard to tell the difference between fact and fiction at that point, right? Like, did is, yeah. is this a journalistic piece of content and can we get like a badge for that? Yeah, I think that most, most reputable publications probably, I think most reputable publications say when something is sponsored. Yeah. Um, but but I still, think I mean, it's like, you know, way up there or way down there. Or... Mm-hmm. You know, but I think that I think that there's got to be a better way of uh, monetize. I don't know what that is, but there has to be a better way of monetizing uh, digital journalism because, of, of course, uh, you know, journalists have to be paid. Uh, a um, a former mentor at my uh, alma mater began actually a nonprofit journalism website. I believe he's he he's not there anymore, but he started this um, local. New York City publication where they talk about politics and kind of the goings inner goings on of uh of, of New York economics and politics and I think that that's an interesting model I don't know if that would work for everyone nonprofit um but something has to happen for sure um to be able for journalism to make that transition from uh from the world of newspapers and print uh to to digital I think if you look backwards, like, you know, when we were walking, I'm older than you, but you're walking upside down backwards in the snow to school or whatever. If you had, you of course you had a newspaper subscription. It was probably like one local one and maybe like a, you know, more New York Timesy. that's, I don't want to call it national, but you know, kind of one local one and one less local one. Right. But you didn't have 76,000 different options of places that wanted you to pay to get the news. Yeah, I think that's kind of the, the frustration around the paywall, but I also think that it's very difficult to tell, you know, the New York Times showed up on your doorstep, you know, that everything that's in there is good and fact-checked and happy and not happy. That's not the word I'm looking for, but you know what I mean? And and now it's a lot more challenging. So something, there's there's some challenges to to be rectified, I think. Yes, for sure. And that's why I think like fact-checking is so important, but I know that um, a lot of people don't necessarily even trust the fact checkers. So like PolitiFact and all that um, and Snopes. But 
I, yeah, it's, it's it, what's something that I, that I've liked is a new feature on like Twitter and Facebook as they kind of flag things when there's fake news. Um, but then those folks think that, you know, the fake a, news is fake news. Yeah. They think it's a conspiracy. So, um, but I think that, you know, I think that that kind of just points to the fact that social media has changed forever the way we consume information. No doubt. No doubt. And figuring it out is an interesting journey, isn't it? Mm -hmm. All right. So I found something fun about you that's not on any of your fun websites. You got married during the pandemic. So A, as a comfort food enthusiast, definitely in high heels, I would think on your wedding day. Tell me all about that. Like, how was it inviting people and having, you know, venues and what was that like? And congratulations, by the way. Thank you. Um, so actually, um, we got married with just our family in a, uh, with just the ceremony. And then we went out to dinner uh, after in uh, last July. And I'm actually doing part two, the reception with everybody else in what's today in three weeks. Um, so that'll be I'm still kind of like crazed with planning the reception. Um, but I, I think that, you know, stretching out an engagement over the course of like basically two years um, and then stretching out wedding planning for three years has been insanity. Um, it Fun has insanity been or like No, I highly bacon. do not recommend. <laughs> I highly do not recommend, um, you know, having to rebook vendors and basically plan two weddings, even though we did such a small thing over the summer with just our parents and siblings, still had to, you know, plan a photographer and all that. Um so I highly do not recommend uh, getting married twice, basically, which is what I'm doing. Um, but it's I, at the very least, at, at the very least, at the end of this, at the end of this long tunnel, um, we, uh, my husband and I will be going on our honeymoon. So that'll be that'll be like the, the reward. <laughs> very good. I like it. Now, importantly, what kind of food did you have the first time and what kind of food are you having the second time? Um, well, we will be uh, at the first time we went to a French restaurant afterward, um, nice. and it was it was really good food. Um, and they particularly had I remember they had amazing uh, amazing soup and bread service. Um, and then um, this this coming this time around, it'll be like kind of a mix of all different types of foods. Um, but something the fun that we're doing for our uh, cocktail hour, um, we're having a bunch of different stations, but two of the stations will be, one is Italian and one will be a uh, Jewish deli because uh, my husband and I, we are an interfaith intercultural marriage. So I'm Italian American and he is Jewish. So we'll be having those as kind of a, a nod to our backgrounds. Very cool and inclusive. Again, that. I love everything that you're doing. I think it's super cool. All right. One more for you before we get to, you know, the two truths and a lie and my fun little endings of things mm -hmm. on your Facebook, you asked people to ask you, give me the top five of any subject and I'll give you my answers. What was the most creative or your favorite response that people gave you or a question they asked you, I guess. I don't remember. I want to say, I want to say someone did say, I don't remember because it was about a year ago, I think, but I, I think that somebody said a Disney movie. I think that someone said Disney movies. All right, Joanna's friends most, do better with more creative answers. Because most of my friends know that I'm a huge Disney buff. So I think that's why they asked. <laughs> All right. So tell everybody how they can connect with you online. What's the best way? Um, well, I, I would say that you could probably just follow me on Twitter. Um, 
I think that uh, it's very easy at Joanna Fantosi. I don't think there's many other Joanna Fantosis in the world. So that handle was available for me. <laughs> I feel you as a Shandy Cherno. Nobody else has that one. So, uh, okay. And then I like to end all these episodes with my favorite, everybody else's least favorite game, two truths and a lie. So in no particular order and don't tell us the answer. Okay. Um, Okay, well, the the first time that I was published in the New York Times was when I was 13 years old. Um, I got really into baking during the pandemic and I won a couple of banana bread recipe competitions. And I learned to ride a bike and drive a car both at very late ages. Well, now I wanna know how old you are. Okay. I like them. I have no idea which ones are true and which one is false. Thank you so much, Joanna, for being here. I really appreciate it. I love this conversation. I love the work that you're doing at Nation's Restaurant News and Restaurant Hospitality. Thanks for opening up the kimono of journalism for us. And uh, listeners, as always, thanks for being here. And we'll talk to you soon.